Hello and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. One of the most significant phrases found in the Bible is in Christ. As Jesus followers, because we are in Christ, we share many of the blessings and attributes of Christ himself. As Paul put it, we become a new creation. Listen today as Pastor Tim begins a new series titled, Who Am I? As he shares what forgiveness looks like when we are in Christ. We hope that this talk encourages you and inspires you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. I hope you enjoyed uh, Christmas and New Year's. I certainly did. Our entire family was able to get together, although this year we had to take some special precautions given my wife's lymphoma, but we were still able to celebrate together, and so that was uh, just wonderful. Also, we're sorry that we had to cancel the two Christmas services on Christmas Eve. I hope you didn't end up arriving here, but we were all ready to go when we discovered that the sprinkler system had frozen over a couple of the pipes and had literally burst. And so in order to um, stop the water, of course, we had to turn off the entire system, which meant we wouldn't have a sprinkler system for our two services. And we were expecting over a thousand in each of them. It just wasn't safe, especially everyone's going to have a candle. So um, we felt that this was the, the thing to do. But I did want to show you two of the pictures just showing why we did what we did. One, and maybe you saw some of this as you came in over on that side. This is the hub, one of the... Uh, rooms that flooded, but then the lobby area toward that end as well, you passed that coming in and you could see that it impacted the ceiling and the wall and the floor and everything else. Uh, So it's, you know, things like this, you just say, God, you're sovereign. I mean, we were ready to go and we thought this is going to be, you know, something really wonderful this Christmas, but God has his plans And our job is just to yield to whatever he's doing. So today we're beginning a new series, though, as has already been mentioned, called Who Am I? And it's a series that naturally flows from what Pastor Bruce talked about last week, our identity. Uh, Who are we really? And specifically, we're going to be talking about who are we in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, or a version of that phrase, appears in the New Testament over 150 times, maybe closer to 200 and it's in different versions, but it's in him and in Christ. And, and it's a phrase that redefines what it means for us to be Christians. It's something that I think we need to understand because if we realize what it means to be in Christ, it will change our lives. Because there are certain things that are true about us if we're in Christ. And there are certain things about Christ that are true about us if we're in Christ. In other words, we become more like he is. And so it's wonderful. I've told, talked before about the fact that when I was in middle school, I, um, I used to love to pretend I was Superman or Tarzan, depending on where I was playing. And so if I was playing at the swing set by the school near our house, I would be, I would be Superman. I love the swings there because they had the big metal. Remember how some swings are just so big? It was so tall and had the metal uh, chain there, and I would go as high as I could. I mean, scary high, but when I got to the top, in my mind, I was soaring to save the day. In my imagination, I was Superman, and when I was in the woods, I was Tarzan. I would cut some of the vines that were hanging from the trees at the bottom, and then I'd swing. That hurt the hands. Never could figure out how I could use that to just travel through the woods like Tarzan did. But in my mind, I could be someone much greater than I was. In truth, I was small, I was weak, 
I, I was a 78-pound weakling, and that's probably generous. I wasn't important. There was nothing significant about me, except the fact I was a twin, which is a two-for-one special, I think. But I wasn't very special. But in my imagination, I could be. In my imagination, I was strong. In my imagination, I wasn't afraid. In my imagination, I could accomplish some great things. Now, let me ask you this question. What if it were possible that we become like our superheroes by virtue of being associated with them? What if, in my imagination, you know, it's a superman, what if I could begin to have some of the attributes of superman? What if I could begin to fly because I was associated with him? Or was strong? Or would have the courage that he or Tarzan had? What, what if that were the case? It would be a game changer. It, it no longer would be just me. Suddenly, I'd be someone who had amazing attributes. I would, I'd be someone that could accomplish various things. I would be someone that would be part of even a team that brought about some wonderful things in this world. Now, I'd like to suggest that that is kind of what happens when we're in Christ. We identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, and he identifies with us. And there are certain things that now are true about us that were not true before. Let me give you one example. If you are in Christ, then when God sees you, he doesn't see a sinner, he sees Jesus. Now, that might be hard for you to imagine, but he sees you as being as righteous as Jesus. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is one of many places where he makes similar statements. He said, he, referring to God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, in other words, never experienced sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. If we're in him, we become the very righteousness of God. An exchange takes place when we put our faith in Christ. He so identifies himself with our sin that the wrath of God is poured out on him as if he had committed those sins. He became a sinner for us, though he never sinned. You understand what I'm saying there? And we become the righteousness of God. And when God sees us, he sees that through us through that lens. He doesn't see us through the lens of you're a sinner. He sees you through the lens of someone who's completely forgiven, completely righteous in his eyes. Now, I'm speaking in legal terms at this point, forensic terms as it's called. In other words, we know we still sin. I'm not suggesting we're going to become perfect or that God is saying, oh, you're, you, know, you never sin anymore. No, that's not what we're talking about. But in a legal sense, God sees you as righteous because your sins have been completely removed from you. He sees you as this righteous person, and that's essential because you won't get to heaven if you don't see, God doesn't see you as righteous because heaven's a perfect place, and we're not perfect people, but in Christ. We don't just become righteous. Paul said we become the very righteousness of God. And so a change takes place. And this is just one of the things that happens. Because in Christ, we also gain some of his strength, some of his abilities, as we'll see throughout this series. But first, let's talk about what it means to be in Christ and, and kind of how we get to that place. Stephen Lawson of the Legionnaire Organization writes, to be in Christ, first of all, means that we have a saving relationship with Christ and are brought into union and communion with him in such a way that as we are in Christ, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. His grace 
and his resources become our experience and our possession. Did you see that phrase? What is true of Christ becomes true about us. Some of the attributes. Now, this is not to suggest you'll become gods, but we become like Christ. He begins to change us. Suddenly, his power is available to us. Some of his other attributes are available to us. In fact, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work within you if you're a believer. Now, we have to see this. This is why Paul prayed in one of the epistles, one of the letters. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so you know what you got. Because in Christ, it's just, again, it's a game changer. C.S. Lewis Institute explains it this way. To be in Christ is to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. Just like my arm is attached to the body and therefore you say that's all part of the body now. That's what he's saying. It means to be in Christ. You're, you're attached to Christ. It is, it is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers. And then he goes on to mention, or they go on to mention some of the implications of this. To use biblical expressions, the peace of Christ rules in their hearts. Not your lack of peace, but Christ's peace. And the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. Paul spoke about the fact he was glad he was weak because then God's power could be even greater in him. It's because he was in Christ. And he said, our life in Christ is made manifest in the mortal flesh. The very life of Jesus Christ is within a believer. It's a game changer. Now, throughout this series, I'm going to be focusing on this phrase, in Christ or in him, as it's recorded just in one book in the New Testament, the book of Romans. I'm just going to limit myself there, but I believe that the Apostle Paul lays out a theology beginning to the end of what it means to be in Christ. And the starting point has to be, of course, where we would start as well, the gospel or the good news. Because in Christ, we are forgiven, which is my takeaway today. In Christ, we're forgiven. Now, the other things I want to talk about are in Christ, we are victorious over sin. In Christ, we are free. We've been set free from lots of things. In Christ, we are secure. And in Christ, we are connected. But this morning, our takeaway is in Christ, we are forgiven. And I want to explain why we're forgiven here today. On, on what basis does God extend forgiveness to us? And it involves three terms that are going to be in the verses I'm about to read. Those three terms explain why forgiveness happens. Those terms are justification, redemption, and propitiation. Don't go to sleep on me on this. Because, you know, the moment you mention words like that, people glass over like, oh, I don't want to talk about redemption, propitiation. I don't know what you're talking about. Before we're done, I think you'll understand. And all these words are connected. You know, we are justified or declared right by God because we've been redeemed by Jesus. Because he became a propitiation for us. So all things are related. Now, our passage this morning is Romans 3, 20 to 26, and... I just want to admit up front that this is a kind of a complicated passage. And, and if I'm reading it, you say, I'm not getting it. I, I trust it'll be clearer before we're done. But I'm going to read the passage. And as I do, I'm going to be throwing in my own thoughts as I go. Because I think, I think it's important to get a, a glimpse of what he's trying to talk about here. Beginning in verse 20 of Romans 3, we read, For no one will be justified, there's the first word, and it means to be declared righteous, 
in his sight, in God's sight, by the works of the law or by fulfilling the Old Testament law. You won't get righteous that way. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. That's its purpose. And I'll talk about that. Now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. In other words, God has a different system. And it's attested to by the law and the prophets. All of Scripture confirms what he's about to say. And that is, God's righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And it's to all who believe, since there's no distinction between, and he goes on to say, Jews and Gentiles. It's the same for all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They and we are justified freely by his grace, by his kindness, and it's through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. There's our second word. God presented him, Jesus, as a propitiation or atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, he passed over sins previously committed. In other words, instead of judging everybody in the Old Testament, he was patient until Christ would come and die on the cross. Verse 26, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in him. Now, you might be glassing over again about this point, but the point he's making is that the solution God came up with proves that he's righteous. And it is the solution by which he declares us to be right in his eyes as well. So if we're in Christ, we are forgiven. And what does that mean, first of all? Well, let's look at this word justification. That's our first word. In Christ, we are justified because we've been, or we are forgiven because we're justified. So what does it mean? Justified means to be declared righteous or right. And specifically here, it means in the eyes of God. So if you're justified by faith, it means God declares you to be righteous, holy, sinless, again, so that you're qualified to go to heaven. Now, some people define justified in this way, and it's, a, it's an okay way to think of it, I think. It's not completely theologically correct, but they say justified means just as if I've never sinned. And that's kind of right. It's not complete, but it's kind of right. So if someone asks you, what does justified mean? Well, it's kind of like just as if you'd never sinned in the eyes of God. That's kind of like what it's like, but it's a big deal because the judge of the earth will not allow us into a perfect place called heaven unless he declares us legally to be righteous in his eyes. Now, my study Bible has a footnote by this word justified, and they define it this way. It's the act of God as judge that declares sinners who were in the wrong to be right or righteous in his sight. God is just in doing this because Jesus died on the cross to take away their sins and to give them his own righteousness. You see why the in Christ part is important? The sinner receives this justification by faith and by grace, by God's kindness, when he trusts Christ's work. So in Christ, Christ took upon himself our sin. We took upon ourselves, or he gave us, imputed to us, it's called, his righteousness. Now, part of the reason that the Apostle Paul talked about this is that the people of Israel in his day, the, the, those of the Jewish nation, misunderstood how you get right with God. They had the idea that the way you get right with God is to follow the 613 Old Testament laws. 
that if you follow all of these laws, God will declare you justified. God will declare you to be righteous in his eyes. And Paul is making the point that is not the way you get righteous. Now, in our day and age, another way that we would put this is is that a lot of people these days think that the way you get right with God is by being good or by following the Bible. They think, well, if if I'm a good person, if I do what the Bible says, I will go to heaven. God will declare me righteous in his eyes. Paul says, no, that is not the means by which we get right. Look at Romans 3.20 again. No one will be justified or declared righteous in his sight by doing the works of the law. I'm putting in the word doing there. But carrying out, fulfilling the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. He's making the point that the purpose of the law is to reveal what sin is. It's not the means by which our sin is removed. So the law is filled, God's word is filled with all kinds of commands that reveal what sin is, but that's, following that is not how you get into heaven. And a lot of people have the wrong idea about this. Now let me illustrate this, why the law doesn't accomplish the goal of making us right. I, I talk fairly often about the fact I have a, a humble little cabin in the woods a couple hours from here. It's just a little humble thing, costs hardly anything, it was it's just surprising how little it costs, but it does have all the, everything you need, water and all that business. And so my wife and I love to, to go there. And when we go there, we have to drive through Romney, West Virginia, and Augusta, West Virginia. And when you take that route, as with any roads that you take, you will occasionally see a speed limit sign. Speed limit is this, speed limit is that. And especially when you go through some of those towns like Augusta, and from my perspective in Romney, the speed limits are they're just too low. I, I want to, you know, I, now, but I don't make the laws. Somebody's decided, even though that's a big road, like going through Romney, someone has decided 25 is the right speed. I don't know who they were. I can tell you this, it wasn't God. It's not the perfect speed limit, but that's fine, okay? So you got the, root, you got the law, and I'm okay with that. Now, there's something else that's true about this trip. And those of you that have been to Romney and Augusta will attest to it. You know this is true. There are always speed traps. Almost 100% of the time, or at least going and coming at least once, almost 100% of the time I'll see a speed trap. And I know they're there. And I know exactly where they are, too. And because that's the case, my wife and I both, we drive the speed limit. Through all of Romney, through all of Augusta, we drive the speed limit, except maybe like a mile over, maybe two miles over, but that's about it. If I look down and I'm going 28 and a 25, I'm putting on the brakes. Now, here's the point I want to make about this. I've made that trip over 100 times. In all the times I've made that trip, I have never been pulled over and given a commendation for my wonderful compliance to the law. No officer ever pulled me over and said, you know, we've been observing your, um, your plate, their license plate, and we've observed that you, you really comply pretty close to that law, and so we're going to give you a key to the city. You say, well, no, that's not the purpose of the officers or the law. I mean, the, what is the purpose of the law? It's not the means by which you'll get a commendation. And, and in our context here, it's not the way by which you get to heaven. 
Didn't Paul say the knowledge of sin comes through the law? It's meant to reveal at what point you become a lawbreaker. And so he's making the point. And so and I realize this, okay, fine, I, I'm going to have to go the speed limit. I'm not going to be perfect at it, but I'm not looking for commendation. I'm just trying to keep from getting a ticket. I'm just trying to avoid the penalty. Now, there are a couple reasons why you can't get right by following God's laws. Really, a, a two that I want to mention here, one of them is this, that none of us do comply 100%, and that's what the requirement would be if you were to get commendation by God to be able to go to heaven. What would have to be true is you'd have to comply 100%. Now, I have a confession to make. In all the times that I have driven to this cabin, 100% of the times I've broken the law. I'm sorry to say that, and I know if you've got young drivers in your household, you're saying, please don't confess that you speed. But I'm talking about one mile over. I'm talking about two miles over, and don't you do the same. The law is the law. And so I'm driving 26, I'm breaking the law. And so I'm just saying, if we're trying to get right with God on the basis of checking all, everything and getting it all right, you're going to be condemned because all of us sin much more. I am much more of a, uh, of a traffic offender than I'd like to admit. I do stay close to the speed limit almost always. I, I really do, but I'm, I break the law every single time I drive because it's 71, it's 72, or 74, or whatever. If that's the basis that you're trying to get to heaven, you can't do it. But second, and the thing I already alluded to, this isn't God's system. It's not the system by which you get right with God, obeying his commands. He has a different system entirely. And he talks about that in the next verses that we're going to cover here, beginning in verse, or let's read 20 to 24 again and see what he has to say. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. That's its purpose. But now, apart from the law, in other words, with a different system, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through faith in Jesus to all who believe, since there's no distinction among people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They, and again we, are justified or declared righteous freely by his grace, and it's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So now you see the first one justified points to the basis of it is this thing called redemption. Look at verse 24 again. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Jesus. So if we're forgiven, number one, we have justification. Number two, we have this thing called redemption. So what does redemption mean? A scholar by the name of R.D. Reitmeyer puts it this way in the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Finding its context in the social, legal, and religious customs of the ancient world, the metaphor of redemption includes the ideas of loosing from a bond. In other words, you are bound, and it means loosing the bond. Setting free from captivity or slavery buying back something lost or sold, exchanging something in one's possession for something possessed by another, and ransoming. In other words, paying a ransom to secure the release of someone or something. The idea is that a price is paid to secure the release of someone or something that was lost or in captivity or was owned by another person. And the price Jesus paid to secure our release was his own life. 
That was the price, a very, very high price, the greatest price anyone could ever pay, Jesus paid for us. From what were we released? Well, from sin, to start with. From, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, I want to talk about next week, and eventually the very presence of sin. You've been set free from all three, although we don't experience that third one yet. You're set free from the penalty and from the power of sin in the presence, but also you're set free from something else. By virtue of the fact that you're one of Adam's descendants, you are born into Satan's kingdom. We're a fallen race. And so Jesus, with his blood, redeemed us. He paid the price to yank us out of the kingdom of darkness, to place us in the kingdom of his son. That is what he's done for us. Let's look at verses 23 and 24 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Now, my study Bible defines redemption as deliverance from bondage by a payment or ransom. Let me give you an illustration of this. I used to have a dog named Toby. I don't anymore. Uh, but uh, I, I, we got this dog when my children were younger. We were uh, at my in-laws for Thanksgiving one year, probably about 15 years ago, maybe longer, I don't remember exactly, but it was a long time ago. The kids were kind of young, and we were coming back from Thanksgiving, and they live in a little town called Coshocton. And before we crossed the line out of Coshocton, we saw a sign, and the sign said, Dog Pound. Now, that's what they used to call animal shelters. Or in today's newspaper, it's called an adoption center. Nice terminology. But in my day, it was called dog pound. And there was an arrow. The dog pound is that way. Now, dog pound is a good way to view the way I'm talking about this because when you think of a dog pound, you think of a bunch of dogs locked in cages. And it really does capture this redemption idea just a little bit. But anyway... My kids saw the sign, and they said, let's go and at least look at the puppies. I said, I don't want a dog. I'm going to end up taking care of the dog. They said, no, we'll take care of it. Yeah, right. No, I don't want to do it, but that's fine. Okay, fine, I'll go, but I'm not going in. I said, I'm not going in. So my five kids and mom, she was on their side, all went in to look at the dogs, and there was this one in particular, a mommy dog that had five babies. And the kids immediately thought, one for each of us. <laughs> so they come out. I'm in the car sitting there. They come out and say, Dad, come and look at the, the dogs. I said, no, I don't, I don't. Because if I go in and look, we'll probably end up getting one, and I don't want a dog. And they said, oh, please, you don't have to get one. Famous last words, you know. So, okay, fine, I'll go and look walked up to this cage with the five dogs in it, and one of them, the cutest little thing, came over and just jumped up. Basically, he said, pick me. I mean, it was just like that, looking at me like this. I, I could not resist. And so I said, okay, fine. We ended up taking Toby in, in this box. It ended up being a she. I have to admit that uh, when I got it, I thought it was a he, but that's another story. There are good reasons why. But anyway, we ended up taking the dog home. But before we could do that, a little transaction had to take place. They said, if you want to take the dog, there's no cost for the dog at all, but you have to pay the bills that we already put into the dog, all the shots and whatever else they did for the dog. They said, you have to pay the bill. It wasn't much at all. It was hardly anything. And I said, I'll pay. I'll pay it. 
and I redeemed the dog that day. Toby couldn't pay the debt. There's nothing Toby could do. But I came along. I had the ability to pay it, and I redeemed her, and she became ours. That's exactly what happens with Jesus through his redemption. And all throughout the Bible, we see this is the case. For example, Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, for you know you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers. That's another way in which we're redeemed from just the earthly living as opposed to living, heavenly living. He said, you're redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. And he's pointing to the fact that in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice an animal to take care of their sin problem. The animal would die. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, they brought a perfect animal that had done nothing wrong and was without any kind of blemishes. They confessed their sin, and it died so they could live. And Peter's saying Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He redeemed us through his blood. So there's justification, redemption. The last word is propitiation. And I'm not going to spend much time on this one. But Romans 3.25 says God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. Jesus became a propitiation that made it so that we were redeemed so that we could be justified. They're all connected in this way. Now, what does the word propitiation mean? Well, it was used in ancient times to convey the idea of satisfying the anger of the gods through a sacrifice. That was the main way it was used. They believed that the gods would get angry. And so your, your goal was to appease the anger of the angry gods by offering a sacrifice. Now, this word is used in Christianity and has some of the same ideas to it. For example, my study Bible defines propitiation in this way. It's the removal of divine wrath. Jesus' death is the means that turns God's wrath from the sinner. Or J. Whitmer puts it this way, Jesus' death is the final sacrifice which completely satisfied God's demands against sinful people, thus averting his wrath from those who believe. Now, a moment ago, I said that, you know, in pagan religions, they would say that, you know, propitiation is appeasing the wrath of the angry gods through a sacrifice. In Christianity, the meaning is slightly different. Charles Ryrie puts it this way, it's to appease that wrath was not a ma- I'm sorry, to appease the wrath of God, basically, was not a matter of vengeance, but of justice. It required the sacrificial gift of God's Son. The, the point he's making is this, that God's holiness can't stand sin. And when we talk about the wrath of God, and by the way, God does have wrath. In fact, in Ephesians 2, we're told we are children of wrath. But the wrath of God is not like this holy temper tantrum. The idea is God is so holy and sin is so objectionable that when the two come together, a holy God and a sinful person, judgment breaks out. It's what happened when somebody made the mistake of touching the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. All they did was touch it. It represented God's presence on earth. You don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. But Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world and then he took upon himself all the wrath of God against the sin of the world, he took the full judgment upon himself, and that's what propitiation is. 
Another word for propitiation is a, a, tone, a sacrifice atonement or atonement sacrifice. And the word atonement, by the way, could be separated to mean at one mint. You take the same word atonement and divide it differently, it's at one mint. Atonement is about bringing two together that were enemies. This is what Jesus did. This is propitiation brought together two that were enemies. So again, my takeaway today is this, that in Christ we have forgiveness. And this forgiveness is possible because we've been justified. We've been declared righteous by God. And the reason he declared us righteous is because he redeemed us. He paid the price to secure our release. And he did it by becoming a propitiation for us, an atoning sacrifice, laying down his life for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums up all three concepts. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So a few questions by way of application. One is, are you in Christ? You know, has there come a point where you've put your trust in Christ? And throughout the pages of the Bible, that's the only way that people get right with God. It's, Jesus is the path. He's the means. It's not obedience. It's putting your trust in a risen Savior who died in your place and for your sin. And if you'd like to know more about that, please talk with someone out in the lobby there. They'd love to explain it to you at the next steps area there. If you're already a Christian here today, let me throw out some other applications for you. Number one is that if you're, a, again, if you're a Christian, th these concepts are things you should probably know, and so I encourage you to get to understand these words, redemption and justification, propitiation. Maybe that will require even listening to this again, but these are things we need to understand. Second, I'm convinced most people in our society have the wrong idea about how to get right with God. They think it's, again, through being good and following the commands and or maybe following the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule. They think it's about them following something. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. And so it's our job to point people. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so I encourage you to be praying for your friends and inviting your friends here and looking for opportunities to introduce them to Jesus as their propitiation And then finally, you know, talk like this, if you're already a Christian, should be a motivation to serve because Christ died for us so that those who live should live for him. And that's, that's really what the Christian life is about. As Christians, we live for Jesus. We're now going to sing a song for you that talks about how we are marked with the words forgiven, or the word forgiven. And that's why we celebrate all that Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your plan to save us, to deliver us from the penalty of all we've done wrong. We realize we could not fix this problem. But you love the world in such a way as to send your son Jesus to be our atoning sacrifice, the sacrifice by which we could become at one with you. And we thank you for that. We put our trust in Jesus and give us a heart, O oh Lord, to to live in the reality of what it means to be in Christ, as we'll be talking in the weeks ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.